Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy Uncle Peter. He will say words at you. This is not going to be humor-based at all. So that's something you need to know going in. Uh, this is the epic adventure of the last almost two months where I got sick and had to go to a Japanese hospital. It's actually the first time in my life I've been hospitalized for any length of time. I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of judo injuries, uh, but those were all dealt with as outpatient stuff. Like they would basically wrap it up, give you painkillers, send you on your way. Maybe you get a checkup every now and then. Basically, if you took care of yourself, you healed really well. The beginning of this month, I felt awesome. I remember I was in judo, and my friend who goes with me, he said, wow, man, you just did like five fights, and you hardly even seem winded. And I was like, yeah, I feel really good. That was Monday. Friday, I had a slight fever. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to take care of this. So I'm going to go to bed early. So like 8, 9 o'clock, I went to bed. Woke up the next day, and I'm like, I still have a fever. I still feel like crap. Because COVID's going on, I should actually be really careful. So I called off work. I said, look, I'm sorry. I can't come into work today. I'm going to go to a clinic. I'm one of those guys who, very traditional, you know, toxic male personality stuff. I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to admit I'm sick. But I'm worried that I, I might have COVID because I've been careful, but honestly not as careful as maybe I should have been. So I got I to gotta make sure I don't make my family sick. So there's a clinic, literally a five-minute walk from my house. So I was like, okay, I'll go over there. But we call up and we say, like, I got a fever. And he's like, well, you have a fever. You can't come in. So you're going to wait until 5 o'clock in the afternoon and then sit in your car. And then we're going to come out and test you for COVID. And then you can come in. Uh, we go out. So, I mean, I spent a day just sitting around feeling like garbage. Then we drive over and we sit in the car. And the guy comes out. He's dressed in full protective gear. This is very sensible. I'm not making fun of him. I mean, he should be in full protective gear. He has me roll down the window halfway. And then he sticks the thing up my nose. And it's not bad. I mean, people, I've watched videos of people on the internet freaking out and stuff, but it's uncomfortable. But if you just sit there and don't move, it's over pretty quick. He goes away, does the PCR test. And he's like, yeah, you don't have COVID. Uh, can you pee? And I was like, actually, right now I can't. It's like, okay, well, tomorrow come back with some pee. Like, really? And he's like, yeah, well, there's nothing we can do right now. The clinic's basically closing. They made us wait there until six o'clock at night. So the clinic's closed. Uh, tomorrow's Sunday, but I'm going to come in. It's not actually open, but I'll be here. So you come in and you bring some pee and we're all good. So the next day I roll up around 10 o'clock and this is when I start limping. And that was something that I do tend to ignore, a physical ailment, because again, I get injured all the time. Limping is not an uncommon occurrence for me. So in my head, I'm like, I'm only worried about the fever. I'm, I'm like, man, I bet I just get some antibiotics or something. I'll be fine if, if they just like, you know, really just drill my body right away and get rid of whatever's trying to hurt me. So 
So I wasn't thinking about my knee at all. Go in and the doctor sees I'm limping. He takes my pee and he goes off in the room. I don't know, taste it or something. This is Dr. Silver Fox. I had to give all the doctor's names to be able to reference them. He's an older man and he is just the aura of what a doctor should be. He's he's older, he's got the gray hair, but it's, you know, really, you know, kind of picture perfect. Clearly a handsome man, he's tall, uh, and he's talking about being responsible, doctors being responsible. He's like, you know, because COVID has everyone panicked, everyone's all stressed out, and people aren't focusing on their work enough, they're not taking care of people. I'm like, man, I think I just fell in love with Dr. Silver Fox here. He's more interested in my knee than I am. He's like, you know, a fever is a pretty common thing. You know, but this knee, it's, let me take a look at it. He, we roll up my pants and uh, it's swollen. It's huge. And I didn't realize that. And he just starts poking it and is like, you got to go to the hospital, like now. Uh, so I go, I like hobble back home. I head into my house and I call a taxi. I'm like, I need to go to the, the local hospital. I live in a small town. The hospital's not very big. But he... The doctor, Silver Fox, he calls ahead. He's like, I know there's a guy there. He's like a knee dude. Uh, He'll check this out. At least he knows what he's doing and they'll know you're coming. So that day I get in the taxi and I roll up to the hospital. In the hospital, I have to do another COVID test. You're not allowed to go into the hospital with a fever without taking a COVID. So this is two PCR tests in two days. This isn't costing me anything. That's actually the bit that maybe, again, uh, our American listeners need to pay attention to. Socialized medicine has meant that I've had multiple PCR tests in multiple days and I've not actually paid any money because they're like, this is something we have to do. So the burden shouldn't be on you. It should be on the taxpayer in general. I get to the hospital and they're expecting me. So then I go in and I meet Dr. Sketcher Smartwatch. You will notice there's a theme for the rest of the doctors naming. Uh, Dr. Silver Fox overwhelmed me with his gorgeousness. Dr. Sketcher's smartwatch wasn't really as impressive, but he was clearly a good doctor. So he's taking a look at my knees like, "Uh, guy, we need to x-ray this. Uh, This is weird. And I'm like, okay, man, you know, whatever you got to do. So now they're thinking my fever is being caused by whatever's causing the inflammation in my knee. They x-ray and they find there's a big lump in there. There's some sort of calcification. And he's like, worst case scenario, we're going to have to go in there and dig this out. That might be what's causing it. Uh, actually, worst case scenario, we might have to replace your knee. So I'm not happy about this, uh, but I was kind of resigned to it because this is something that happens to people when they get older. Again, I've sort of abused my knees to an extremity that other people haven't, having done judo for 30 years. It's not like I didn't see this coming. So I wasn't happy about it, but I was kind of resigned to it. He's like, we want to take some fluid out of your knee and test it and see what's going on. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let's uh, let's let's do that. So didn't hurt. I mean, they just stuck a needle in. I didn't watch. Uh, they stuck a needle in, took some juice out, and tested it. And they're like, um, we don't need to go in there. So that's a big relief. But also, we don't know what this is. This is maybe some kind of like crazy arthritis or rheumatism or something. So we're going to send you to a specialist. So you come back in a couple of days with a specialist. Now, this whole time, we're talking now four or five days, I'm not actually getting any medication or anything because they don't technically know what's wrong. So they don't want to give me something that makes it worse. But that means my condition is essentially just deteriorating. And what I was actually thinking the whole time was like, if this was in nature, I am now getting to the point where it's, it's becoming difficult to walk. Uh, I have a fever that's wrecking me. So 
I'm worn out and I, I can't run away from predators. In the wild, I would be dead. And then I started thinking, you know, honestly, 40 years ago, I probably wouldn't be doing too well. I might actually be dead at this point because they might not be able to figure out what's going on. They don't have the same level of x-ray technology. They don't have the same sort of analytic abilities that they have now. They still don't know what's wrong, but they 100% wouldn't have known what's wrong X amount of years ago. So I started realizing, you know, how weirdly lucky I am to be getting sick now as opposed to X, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So then we go back to the hospital and I meet Dr. Birkenstock Tagore, which is a weird combination. So the Birkenstocks send a message. I care about comfort, sort of a hippie thing. The Tagore watch, though, that to me sends a very different message than the Birkenstocks. Tagore is sort of a fancy brand, and it's one of those ones that you do a little bit to show off. Anyone who knows watches is going to see Tagore. They're going to notice that right away. This guy was a specialist in rheumatism and arthritis, and he looks at my knee and goes, nope, that's not how that works. And he spends the rest of his time basically bitching about other doctors talking about rheumatism because they clearly don't know what they're talking about. So what I get is a very superficial look over and he's like, yeah, that's not how rheumatism works. It's not how arthritis works. It's not what it is. So, you know, basically get out of my office and I'm tired of other doctors sending people like you to me. This is a waste of my time. Interesting attitude, to be honest. Uh, I had a weird amount of respect for this guy because he was so straightforward and so clear and so authoritative. Um, and he was right in a way. Actually, we'll get into what actually happened a little later. But now it's getting really bad. And he, they're like, look, we're a small hospital. We don't have the facilities to really check you out properly. You need to go to the big municipal hospital at the in the big city that's closest to us. So, all right. Another couple days, we go there, and I'm just wrecked. My fever is off the charts. Uh, my, both my knees are now starting to not work, and I'm just thinking, like, this is it. I'm going to die. And then I meet Dr. Nike, and Dr. Nike is very off-putting at first. He's a very good doctor. He became my main doctor for the next month, but he giggles when he talks, and he's got kind of a weird atmosphere. He's a young guy certainly a significant number of years younger than me, which didn't bother me. I don't mind doctors being younger than me like some people do. But when he giggled the first time, and it was when he said the word penis, because they had to ask, like, do you have any burning in your penis? Do you have any, any sort of discomfort in your areas and stuff? When he said that, he giggled a little bit, like saying the word penis was a weirdly bad thing. So I was like, oh, I'm not 100% with this guy, but... Okay, he does seem to know what he's doing. He's like, Look, we're going to do a bunch of tests and uh, we need to check you into the hospital. Now, as I said at the beginning, I've never been checked into a hospital before. So this was actually scary to me. I did not want to be checked into the hospital, but I was in no state to argue. I had no idea what was going on or what was going to happen. So I was like, okay, let's do it. So they immediately just like took blood, took as many as much as I had a ton of blood. Uh, then they threw me up into a bed and then took me upstairs to the ward where I would be staying. Uh, Japanese hospitals, it's four people per room uh, for the, the public ones. You can pay for semi-private and then you can pay even more and get a private room. And they're working really hard to try to figure out what's wrong with me. And it turns out there's actually two things. The initial thing was an infection of some sort and basically just needed antibiotics. Now it turns out the knees were a thing called reactive arthritis, which I had never heard of. So it makes me think that maybe Dr. Birkenstock 
really didn't know his arthritis as well as he thought he did because it is a form of arthritis. It's just really unusual. And what happens is when your body fights an infection, your knees just sort of like, now nah, fuck off, we're out of it. We're done. We're just going to ruin your life and make it so you could not run away from a predator and die. To a degree, it's genetic. So this isn't something that's common, which is, again, why it was probably really hard for the doctors to figure out. So they had to put me on antibiotics for a week to get rid of this, the, the initial infection. And that's because it had run its course. Like it was, it was ruining me at this point because it had gone a week and a half or something unchecked. Because again, they didn't know what was going on. So absolutely fair. Uh, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm actually disparaging the doctors because I actually think every doctor I encountered did a fairly good job, except Dr. Birkenstock, who I think might be a little overconfident in his position. Uh, I don't know how much reactive arthritis is arthritis. So that's where my lack of knowledge makes it difficult for me to judge the quality of his care. But him basically kicking me out of the room and saying, like, tell all the other doctors to fuck off wasn't maybe the best course of action. So Dr. Nike, every day I got this, like, tub of antibiotics. It's, like, jacked into my arm. Uh, and I'm not eating it at this point. So I'm also getting feeding tube which is constant, uh, like eight hours a day. Um, and I'm losing tons of weight. So I went into the hospital. I was 91 kilos. So I was a solid 200 pounds when I went into the hospital. I had been, I'd, of course I'd been losing weight. And I, in, part of my brain way in the back was like, maybe I'll lose all my fat, which is what I've been struggling with lately. And that'll be awesome. Turns out, that's not how it works. You lose all your muscle mass. You basically atrophy while you lay in bed for weeks at a time. The first problem I ran into, of course, was the fact that I'm in a room with four other people. Now, we're not going to pay for the extra room because it's unnecessarily expensive and, and we're not rich people. If you have four men in a room, statistically, at least one of those men is going to snore. Like, I don't know if that's a fact, but as soon as they said there's going to be four people in the room, I was like, yep, someone's going to snore. Now, I expected snoring, and snoring is something you can handle if it's normal human snoring. There was a guy in this room, and this was the most unbelievable amount of noise I've ever heard come from a human being. And it's because his, I think snoring is rhythmic. Like it's breathe in, breathe out, whatever. And you can kind of get used to it and maybe fall asleep. It might take longer, but again, I have nothing to do the next day. I'm still in the hospital. So... I would have been okay with that. This guy had a variety of snores he swapped out throughout the evening. And I, I don't know if it was positions or what, but there was one that was astounding. And it's almost like he held his breath for an inordinate amount of time and then breathed in suddenly in a giant snore and then sounded like he had been exercising really hard. So I'm going to try to mimic it. I have to get a little bit farther back from the mic. So it'd be dead silent because he's not breathing. And because that was happening at random intervals, it meant that I was incapable of, you know, getting into any sort of rhythm where I could fall asleep in between. And if you did start to fall asleep, well, that meant it was going to wake you up because it was so sudden and shocking. So the first few days, I wasn't sleeping at all, which wasn't ma making my situation any better. Uh, the head nurse at one point, so I, I said to my doctor, my doctor came, 
Dr. Nike came up and he's like, how you doing? I'm like, well, I'm okay, but it's almost impossible to sleep. So I like, I haven't actually slept in a day and a half now. Uh, he's like, wow. Yeah, that guy does suck. This guy was sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day. He would basically wake up and eat and then go back to sleep. The head nurse came the next day or the day after and asked me if there were any problems with the room. And this is a very Japanese thing because they don't want to deal with the issue directly. That would be rude. But I'm like, well, technically, there are no problems with the room. But, and then I kind of gestured over to the direction of that guy. Now, I didn't want to rat him out. He's obviously in the hospital too. He's sick. But I mean, unless he's getting his snoring fixed, I actually don't think he should be in a room. It became very clear to me they need a snoring versus non-snoring room for people. So I'm a really light sleeper. There's actually a story I told on Velocity Podcast earlier. I don't remember what episode. I may actually start getting better at you know, taking notes about what I actually talk about so I could refer to episodes. When I was a kid, I had a man break into our house and step on my head, and that has made me a very light sleeper ever since. So I wake up at everything. So this guy was killing me. It was like two, three days. Then I don't know if he was discharged or if they just moved him because the snoring of one man was negatively impacting the health of three other people. And so I think it would be fair to put him in a private room just for the sake of the other people. I wouldn't even say charge him more. I wouldn't say like he deserves to be punished because it's not really his fault. This is how he snores. But at the same time, if he's negatively impacting the health of other people, because they can't sleep, yeah, that's something you need to take care of. So he's gone. Uh, the next sort of issue was the guy next to me who was in a lot of pain. And this made me realize something very sad about human nature, at least my own. It was that sympathy disappears pretty quickly. Now this guy, every time he rolled over, he said, ouch, 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 ouch. But it's Japanese, so he doesn't say that. Uh, in Japanese, it hurts. You say itai. And Japanese people, if something hurts, they go, because they're making the first sort of syllable of that word, and they've changed that into, ow, 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 something like that. In my head, it really annoyed me at the beginning, and I'm like, you know what? He's in pain. I have to have some sympathy for that. So every time he'd roll over and go, I would be like, you know, do your best, brother. I know it hurts and stuff. But then you get to a point where you're really tired again, and he does it, and I'm like, oh, I just want to smother him with a pillow. This is probably getting to my lowest point depression-wise because I don't feel like I'm getting better. And now, because they have to take care of uh, infection A before they can deal with my uh, art reactive arthritis. So infection A is antibiotics, but uh, to deal with the arthritis, they're actually going to give me steroids. You can't do those at the same time. So my knees are just getting worse and worse and worse. I'm now unable to walk and I'm in a wheelchair. First time in my life. Not a fun experience, and also quite scary. Like, am I going to be in a wheelchair forever now? I don't know. Again, there is still the option of maybe replacing my knees and stuff, but we're talking about significant surgery, and that's not something I want to get into. The antibiotics are done, and they move on to, okay, we got to take care of this stuff in your knees. So he kind of explains it to me as best he can, but again, all this is in Japanese, and I'm following as best as I can, and I, I Honestly, I'm only catching about 50% of what's being said to me. But at this point, I now do trust Dr. Nike, as off-putting as he might be when he giggles at some weird point. So he's like, we're going to take a giant needle and jam it in your left knee and fill it up with steroids, and that's going to be awesome. Uh, 
but we're doing your left knee first because I want to see if there's any side effects. And if that is fine two days later, three days later, we'll do your right knee. So he hit me with the steroids and it went in. I mean, he just slid the needle in, put in the steroids, pulled it out. It was fine. I went from being in a wheelchair to standing up and walking around, not super comfortably, but walking around uh, in one afternoon. Now, of course, it wasn't just that simple. Uh, before this point, I got to ride in pretty much every machine they have at the hospital, I think. I got two CT scans. So they wanted to check, you know, basically everything in my body. And people make it out like it's a horrible experience. It is uncomfortable, but it's not that bad. It's just noisy. And it takes about 20 minutes. Or I'm sure maybe there's longer ones and stuff, but you just lay there and try to ignore the noise. They put headphones on you with music, but the noise drowns out the music almost immediately, so that was almost pointless. I almost would have rather had them not put on the headphones with the thing and just put on headphones that, you know, white noise or try noise counseling or something. That wasn't as bad as I was led to believe it was going to be. I got a very interesting thing. It looks like the same. It's a tube like a, a CAT scan, uh, but they fill you up with stuff that's going to make your bones and joints glow. So this is some kind of medicine or juice that they put in you. Uh, having had a fever for weeks at a time, when they put it in my arm, it was cold and it felt really good. And that was a weird feeling because I could feel it spread throughout my veins and through my body. Like it went through my left arm and then went through the, like down my chest and I could actually feel it sort of getting into my legs and stuff. And then they put me in the machine. And this was one of the more interesting experiences because I have no idea what's going on. Like they've explained it to me in Japanese. And I've only got a vague understanding of what they've said to me. So I'm in the machine and all the stuff that was cold a few minutes after they've turned the machine on starts to heat up, which is very uncomfortable. And I think I now have a sense of what the beginning of being microwaved feels like. Now, it never got to the point where it was painful and I complained. I'll be honest about that. Uh, but like when the inside of your body starts to get hot unexpectedly, that is a surprise and it's a bit of a shock. And I'm sure they told me it was going to happen, but I missed it. The guy who runs the machine came out and checked the screen multiple times. And he seemed very confused about what he was seeing inside my body. Now, I didn't take that to mean anything. For all I know, that's really normal. They come out and check the machine multiple times, but he did have a confused look on his face. And I don't think anyone had told him about my body because that wasn't the stuff they were concerned with. They were just really looking at my knees more than anything else. It turns out that the scar tissue from all my injuries also shows up on this machine. So they were looking for stuff that would be like swollen and sore. So any dark spot is basically an image of your skeleton and there are dark spots all around your body. Uh, so my knees were like lit up. They were like Christmas trees. Uh, but the problem was pretty much every joint in my body was lit up. So my entire spine is covered in scar tissue from years of judo and like twisting and turning. My elbows, my shoulders, my knees, my hips, basically everything that could move has been injured at some point. One of the most interesting things was my right big toe was one of the darkest spots. And I honestly have not felt any pain in my big toe for years and years and years. I've clearly broken it multiple times and not realized. And maybe it's never healed properly. Maybe it's fine. I don't feel any pain there. 
And then a couple of my friends were suggesting maybe it's because you just don't feel pain there anymore, which is perfectly viable. The doctor, after I was back in my room, Dr. Nike came in with the, the little printout of my skeleton and he's like, are you okay? Like, do you feel pain all the time? And I'm like, no. He's like, basically then went through, like, do your shoulders hurt? I was like, no, my left one's a little stiff, but you know, it doesn't hurt. He's like, does your back hurt? And I'm like, no, it doesn't hurt. It's fine. I don't feel anything um, physically or emotionally. And then does, and then he just stopped and goes, does your big toe hurt? I'm like, no, man. I mean, look, you can touch it and stuff. It doesn't hurt at all. So this was clearly a new experience for them and me because I don't think they'd had anyone who'd had this much maybe physical damage over time in that machine because they had clearly not seen this before. So we got past that. Uh, then came the most pleasurable experience in the hospital. And it's, uh, you know, pregnant ladies, they get the sonogram. Uh, they decided to do that on my legs. Now, I, the guy was really nice. He puts on the warm gel, squirts that all over your legs. It's warm gel feels really good. And then he spreads it around. And that feels really nice. Then he takes the machine, the little like wand, and he starts pushing it up and down your legs, which is really a gentle massage. And then he gets to any point that he wants to look at, which I assume is the sore bits, because they, I could feel them. They were more sore than the other bits. And he starts like, you know, moving it back and forth over that part, which is sort of a deeper massage, but he's not doing it hard enough to actually cause me physical pain. So this was an incredibly pleasant experience. It was actually one of two sonograms I have. They actually checked my heart, which I wasn't 100% sure why they were doing that. But at this point, I'm just, you know, a soldier doing as I'm told. Uh, they could have been like, here's a super serum we're going to put in you. I'd be like, yep, all right, let's do that. Uh, I lay on my left side and the doctor doing the sonogram, sat at my back down by my hips with his arm over my body and massaged my chest with the wand and looked at my heart and stuff, which was weirdly intimate. It was actually more intimate feeling than the guy when he was massaging my leg up close to my crotch. So there's a good sense of what intimacy is. There's actually very little to do with your, your sexual organs. It's, it's, it's more of a feeling of closeness. But if you have messed up legs and they say we're going to do a sonogram, that's probably going to be one of the best days for you in the hospital. The punctuation of all this is absolute boredom. So there's no Wi-Fi in the hospital and I ran out of data, like clearly day one. I have like three gigabytes because I'm at on Wi-Fi at home and Wi-Fi at work. So I don't use any data except on the train. I basically don't use any data. So just looking at like Reddit or just trying to find stuff to read, was I just ran through my data instantly. I was lucky in that I was able to download a bunch of podcasts before my data ran out when they started throttling my actual package. And I got weirdly annoyed that they were doing that. So I actually updated a whole bunch of stuff on my phone and just let it run overnight. And I just used gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of data that I wasn't supposed to get because I have time. I mean, you want to take four times longer to load something. What else am I going to do? I'm just sitting here. The routine in the hospital was weird because uh, it was lights out at 9.30. And that's not a normal time for me to go to bed. I was usually like midnight to 7 o'clock in the morning. So going to bed between 9.30 and 10 meant I was usually waking up between 3 and 4. And I wasn't able to get back to sleep. So 
I would just stay awake and try to read stuff or just lay there and be bored out of my mind. I was incredibly lucky in that I had the window looking outside. The guy to my left, they had a curtain around him. He was just stuck in a cell and it was basically isolation the whole time. So I'm listening to these three other guys snore and fart and stuff, but now we've gotten rid of the uh, uh, crazy snoring guy and itetetete guy. He actually left a couple days later, so it was everyone in the room was really quiet. Uh, if they're going to take your blood, they actually come between 5 and 6 in the morning and take your blood, and then they take it down to the lab. So you guys actually go first because you're in the hospital. You kind of get priority. You, you're the first ones in, and then they can bring your results in the, in the afternoon. If they don't, you just lay there and breakfast comes at like 7 o'clock. And Japanese hospital meals, I mean, people complain about hospital meals, but Japanese ones are pretty good if you like rice because you are getting a huge tub of rice every single time. And I hope you like fish because that's basically all you're getting. I think in a week it would have been five days of fish and maybe some chicken and maybe once or twice in the month we had some kind of beef. A normal meal would have been a big bowl of rice, a slab of fish, some kind of boiled vegetable, which was actually kind of gross, uh, miso soup, which was really good, some tea, which was really nice, and dessert. Now, dessert usually consisted of some kind of fruit, which was very nice. Uh, they had the best one. The peak dessert we got was mandarin oranges from a can in yogurt. Like I, at that point, my world had become so small and so empty of activity or life that the dessert became one of the highlights of my day. And that mandarin orange yogurt combination was, was the pinnacle of happiness for a few minutes. When you enter the hospital, my wife, of course, wrote down things that maybe I would have allergies. And I don't really have any food allergies, but if I eat the skin of a peach, the fur, the fuzz or whatever, you know, it makes my throat itch. But I'm in a weakened condition, so, you know, basically maybe no peaches. The problem is one of the desserts one day was canned peaches, which would have been fine. But because my thing said no peaches, I didn't get peaches. The three other guys got peaches, but I didn't get peaches. And what did I get? I got three red beans. Now, red beans in Japan are considered a sweet dish, a sweet treat. Um, but the step down league-wise from canned peaches to three red beans is abysmal. It's shocking. There is no comparison between what could happen. It became one of my missions was the day I get out of the hospital, I'm going to eat an entire can of peaches because there's no way the universe is going to treat me like this. The meals were good. I don't think I was getting enough food because as I said, when I went into the hospital, I was 91 kilos or 200 pounds. When I got out of the hospital, I was 78 kilos or 171 pounds. So I had lost about 14% of my body mass. And again, most of the fats was still there. I'd lost a ton of leg muscle. Like they had basically atrophied because I wasn't walking for weeks at this point. I was in the wheelchair. After I was in the wheelchair, I was able to get up and move around. I was walking to the toilet, which was about 50 steps away and walking back. But that would actually exhaust me. So I'd lost basically all my leg muscles. I've lost my chest. I had a chest. It wasn't, you know, particularly glorious, but it existed. And now it just doesn't exist. It's just like a concave space where my chest used to be. Uh, my biceps and arms, 
the skin is actually loose because I lost so much. And that was a bit of a shock at how weak I was. And I think maybe I needed more food. There is a, a convenience store on the first floor of the hospital because this was a big municipal hospital. And it was interesting because I realized the other guys in the room were going down there and buying snacks, which I was thinking you probably shouldn't be eating snacks and junk food in the, in the hospital when you're sick. I don't know what they had. I didn't ask. I didn't really talk to anybody. And that's one of the reasons my voice sounds significantly different now compared to if you listen to a previous episode of Velosa podcast. It's very soft and it's a little bit rough. It's because for a month, I didn't really speak to anyone. The nurses came and they would take your temperature and your blood pressure and your pulse and stuff. And they would ask you, like, did you go to the toilet? I learned all the words for poop you can learn in Japanese, I think. Um, because when I went in, I only knew one. I went unchi, which is like a kid's word for poop. So they would say, like, did you poop yesterday? And I could say yes. Uh, but then, of course, they're nurses. They don't want to use kids' talk with an adult. So they would ask a different word. And I'd be like, I don't know what that word is. And they go, oh, that's unchi. So I was like, oh, okay, well, i got to file that away. They're going to ask me that again. So there's suji and uh, benz. So these are two different words for poop. And uh, pooping, how, are you pooping regularly, was a question I got asked every single day. So I, I learned those words. That was some good Japanese I picked up. Now we're getting into sort of the end game where I'm actually sort of getting better. So he's now done the steroids in my right knee. And the steroids in my right knee, it took five tries to get the needle in. When he was very apologetic. And so like the first one, the left knee, he did it in one go and it was perfect. And he was like, he couldn't figure out what was going on. And I think it was just because it was so swollen and so messed up. He couldn't find sort of the angle of entry. Uh, and it hurt. But once he got it in, now he again, very apologetic, but I'm like, dude, I understand. Like, it's not your fault. You're trying your best. You're, you're a good guy. Just let's try again and get it over with. Uh, and I think he appreciated that, that I wasn't getting upset or angry. I was just like trying to breathe through it. Uh, he got it in and he got the steroids in. Now, after that, I was able to get the sort of feeding tube out of my arm and because they just leave it in. And I'm not a big fan of needles. Like when they take my blood, I don't watch. I'm not into this. People who like, you're scared of needles. I'm like, well, actually, it's sensible to be scared of needles. I'm not actually scared of needles. I just don't enjoy the process. And I certainly don't want to see it happen. I was just yeah, looking away, breathing through, like, okay, let's just do it. He got it. By that night, I was able to walk around relatively normal. And this was one of the first times in a couple of weeks I was able to straighten my legs, which was a very weird feeling to suddenly have. And because the thing, the tube was out of my arm... The next day, you know, it's basically healed after a day or two. I was able to sleep on my left side. I laid down and I rolled over on my left side for the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think I fell asleep instantly because that's normally how I fall asleep. I think I fall asleep on my left side and then I might roll onto my back and maybe on my, my right side. But I'll basically just go back and forth. But I almost always fall asleep on my left side. So now we're getting to the point where I'm itching to get out of the hospital. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I've run my course. I'm like, look, I'm not getting better in here anymore. When can I get out? One of the benefits of Dr. Nike is that he never gave me optimistic numbers. So I said, like, you know, am I going to get better? He's like, yes, I think it's going to take six months for you to be walking normally again without medication. I was like, damn, because in my head, again, I had done recovery for so many injuries in the past, it was a non-question to me that if you say six months, I think two. 
if you say two weeks, I think one. I'll get. I'll be done in a couple of days because I always did the right stuff. I ate the food you're supposed to eat. I did the exercise you're supposed to do. I did all the things that people don't do, and then they wonder why they don't get better. I understood that if you do the things, even if it hurts, even if it sucks, you'll get better. So I decided on my own I was going to start walking. And on my phone has a pedometer thing. So it counts your steps. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do 2,500 steps in the morning. That's basically from my house to the station. And if I can do that twice, I'll be able to go to work and home again. So I did 5,000 steps one day. And I did 5,000 steps the next day. And I was absolutely not ready for that and my legs were burning, and I wasn't able to walk the next day. Uh, the steroids were great, um, no side effects, and I was just now thinking, there's no reason for me to be here anymore. So I asked the doctor, when can I get out? And he said, two weeks. And then a couple of days later, he said, if everything's good on Monday, so we're going to take some blood and do some blood work. If everything's good on Monday, you'll be able to go home on Tuesday. So he had added an extra week, Again, I think to keep me from getting sort of overly hopeful. But once I got that number, and this is something that actually happened before, is I'd made the mistake. They said, we're going to do this test on the 25th. And in my head, I had mistranslated that into, you'll be able to leave on the 25th. So I was counting down to the days I was able to leave. And that's actually when they did the microwave test, um, which was not even close to when I was going to get out of the hospital. So finally we're getting to the point where I'm going to get out soon. And this is when we introduce the horror element of the story where a woman is put into the room next door to us. And this woman cries all day. Uh, she was screaming a lot. So I don't know if this was physical or mental, but Japanese moaning and, and sobbing and weeping in a hospital is one of the most terrifying experiences you can have because you've been taught from every Japanese horror movie that that sound means the lights are going to flicker and if that happens some kind of like weird ghost in a white dress is going to come and just you know wreck your stuff I'm lucky it was in the other room because it was possible to drown out and I was able to sleep and stuff but then I was able to get out and that was basically one month in the hospital uh, in Japan it's not an experience I would recommend, but if you have to go into a hospital anywhere in the world, Japanese ones are not that bad, at least in the experience I had. Uh, it's difficult to compare to other countries because I've actually never been in a hospital for any length of time in another country. We got out because of our medical insurance. It cost 192,000 yen, which is like about 2,000 bucks. But that is, I believe, 30% of the total cost. So that's, again, another thing to talk about when you talk about socialized medicine. We're talking about I got to play in every single machine. I got tons of scans. I got blood tests regularly. I got antibiotics. I got IV bags full of nutrients put into me. The food, everything was paid for. We paid 2000 bucks, and I was basically there for a month. In a non-socialized Medicare system, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford to stay in the hospital. So I'm not, you know, going to make a big, strong statement here, but this relatively small thing didn't ruin our family the way it could have. So now I'm out of the hospital. I've been at home. Uh, I'm taking a ton of weird drugs every day uh, and going for regular checkups, but everything seems to be getting better. The 
voice thing. I said, yeah, like I hadn't, I hadn't spoken to anyone for a month. So I wasn't talking to the other patients. We weren't making friends. I did actually kind of talk to one guy, but I was very shy about talking to him. I don't want to ask him what's wrong with him. He immediately started telling him I was the youngest person on the floor. So I'm 48 years old right now. Uh, everyone else was clearly 50 plus easy. I was the youngest person there and being the only foreigner, it sort of, I sort of stood out. So I got a little bit extra shy about that. One guy was really nice. We talked a bunch. Uh, when I was doing my 2,500 steps, he was barreling around about four times faster than I was. And I don't know if he was trying to prove a point or something, but uh, he was making it clear that he could walk faster than me. But I don't think he realized that I was struggling just to like stay upright half the time anyways. If you have any questions about my stay in the Japanese hospital. I mean, we're not going to get too deep into my actual ailments and stuff. I avoided that uh, fairly deftly on purpose because that's not anyone's business but my own. But the experience, if you want to know anything about the experience, uh, there is a link to a place where you can leave questions. I'm more than happy to answer questions. Uh, if you want to talk about insurance and other stuff like that, I'm actually more than happy to talk about that. Uh, I am insured up the wazoo. Again, like I said, it was 192,000 yen for the hospital stay. My insurance is actually paying out 250,000 yen. So in a weird way, I actually made a small profit off being in the hospital because I'm so insured. But it's really important that should something happen to me that it doesn't ruin my family. So insurance is something you should look into. Uh, make sure your pay is protected. Uh, make sure that your family is protected. I mean, you're trying to take care of yourself, but it gets to a point in your life where really you should be taking care of the people around you as well. So you got to do that. But yeah, if you have a question, you can email me, velocipodcast.gmail.com. You can send a message. Uh, I actually forget the name of the service because I only set it up right before I got sick. But I'll put a link in with the description and you can leave a message there and I would be more than happy to answer questions as long as they're not too personal in nature. And if you want to ask a question that's too personal in nature, if I'm in the right mood, I'm going to answer it. But realistically, uh, probably not. A couple people sent messages. Really appreciate that. It was It's a massive motivator. You don't understand how much it means to someone when they're in rough shape to get a message. Just saying like, hey man, when's the podcast coming back? But what they're saying is I enjoy what you do and I'm glad you do it. And that makes me want to come back and do it even more. So thank you to everyone for your messages if you sent a message in. Uh, I really appreciate it, and it's really one of the things that got me back sitting in front of the computer trying to do this again as quickly as possible. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast. Sexy out homies. This is a message for Jordan G's lady friend. Uh, while I was sick, he sent a message. Uh, and it was very encouraging. It was about a Steven Seagal episode. And I just wanted to say thank you for the message. And I really sort of pay it forward. So this is not actually for Jordan. This message is for his lady associate. And it's the four S's you need to remember for the rest of your life. You can make this into a ringtone or something. I mean, that's up to you, what you do with this. You could just listen to it and forget about it. It's fine. The four S's. Sister. 
Steven Seagal sucks. Steven Seagal sucks. And a more direct message to Jordan's partner. I love you and I'm proud of you.